Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Square. I'm Poonam Schallenberger, and I'm here with Joe Haver, Commercial Sector Leader. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. So glad you're here. Today, we're going to try to decode master planning. Can you walk us through what master planning is? I feel like that's probably a good place to start. Uh, yes. Thank you for asking. So um, here at Corgan, we offer a bunch of different project types, including master planning, and it happens in multiple different sectors. So in aviation, they're doing large aviation projects that require uh, a full understanding of what the, the new terminal might be, where how it sits on the site. Same with education, with community colleges, for example. There's lots to, to lay out and configure. In our sector, in our commercial sector, um, it really takes shape typically in the form of a mixed-use development. And I'll, I'll, I'll dig a little deeper into that in a minute. But oftentimes we get asked to look at a site that a, that a client or developer may either own or consider purchasing. And the first thing from their mind is, what can, can I achieve? What can I develop? What can I build on this site? And so early engagement with architects, with us, allow them to share a little bit about their insights on what it is they're looking for. And then we get to validate. We get to explore the characteristics of the site. We get to map out different uh, configurations of what could go where and really determined uh, the, the the overall tone of the development. Yeah, you know, earlier, Joe, you and I were talking about master planning a little bit, and um, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, we, we think we know what it would entail, master planning. It's kind of maybe a little bit self-explanatory, but you once shared with me that a lot of times master plans don't ever even get built, that they kind of set the tone. And I guess for a layperson, you would think, okay, so here's the plan, off you go. Can you walk us through how, like, where in the lifeline of a of a site does master planning happen, and then how does it evolve? Yeah, it's it's typically step one of any project, and it and it does depend on scale. There there are certainly some projects that come to us that say, I just want 150,000 square foot office building and a parking garage, and that's it. So while there's there's still a little bit of master planning, it's not necessarily um, a broader view of the site. It's specific to that use. But when you have a large site and you're trying to accompany multiple different program elements, uh, in our case, mixed use is typically commercial office, it's residential, it's retail, sometimes hospitality and or entertainment. So those are the four uh, product types that we typically put in these, in these uh, mixed use developments. But master planning is always step one, given a large site, because you have to determine First of all, is there a financial feasibility that this is going to work? And it's a very simple thing to do to map out on a site where things can, can, can happen, where they should happen, and uh, assign to those blocks of space, if you will, dimension. So then you end up with uh, the final product being a, a comprehensive master plan of a site and maybe some rendered images that show what it could look like from the aesthetic standpoint. And then that developer can take it out to the market and test it. And we've done a whole series of these in my career and in the firm. And every now and again, you'll complete a master plan and you'll read an article about it. KDC d d d decides to move forward with the city line development and then the phone starts ringing. And it's not that they're moving forward, they're just trying to gauge interest in the market. So 
uh, if there's enough interest and or tenants involved in the project and the financing can happen, then it turns into a real project. So master planning is, is typically on the front end of most projects, and sometimes it's done simply to test the market. Other times it is done as part of a, a real project, if you will, that's moving forward, and you really just have to figure everything out. You know, you said once that it kind of sets the tone for what's going to happen there. And you've also mentioned that it, 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 there's sort of evolutions and things change and lifestyles change, new sort of pressures or technology comes in. How do you sort of balance a vision with something that's realistic? Uh, great question. Um, so going back to the earlier statements of, you know, we start with the master plan. It does sound like a very simplistic thing to do. You just put a whole bunch of buildings on the site and you're done. But, but it tends to go a little deeper than that for us. And, and part of this is really those upfront conversations with the development team to try to determine what the, what's the driver for this development. And if we look at other developments that exist, Victory Park, for example, American Airlines Center, that's based around the idea of entertainment. Mm. And in that entire development, there's a lot of multifamily. If you look at the programmatic elements, most of the surrounding area is multifamily. And that's an attempt, and, and tall, dense multifamily as well, to bring all these people into this central space to gather. There's entertainment functions. There's food and beverage. It's predicated on the idea of entertainment. A lot of the other mixed-use developments we look at, the, the trend has been over the last decade and a half back, going back to live, work, play. We've all heard that in the past it was a mantra when I first started the firm, <laughs> live, work, play, everything. It went away. It's come back. And part of the reason I think it's come back, this is a maybe a shift in thinking a little bit. When we started doing early corporate campus master planning, <clears throat> there was a driver from all these companies within the real estate department to, to project their growth models. And so it was a matter of, you know, here's all of our assets. We're growing at a certain rate. In another year or two, we're going to need another million square feet. Let's hire an architect. Go do that. So it was driven more by the, the growth and the needs of the company. The shift was when that got turned over into the hands of the HR departments, the folks that knew the culture of the firm a little better. And this was a State Farm for us several years ago where we started planning the, the city line campus in Richardson is, is about a 100-acre development sorry, 200-acre development, and we were the master planner for the entire development, and the anchor for that was State Farm. They had several thousand employees that they were bringing to the area. It was right on a, a, a DART station, so it was a transit-oriented development, and the HR group really took the lead and initiative on developing really all of the parts and pieces of what State Farm needed. One of the drivers for that project was the fact that they didn't want to build into their space cafeterias or break rooms. They wanted to engage their people down into the first level and provide retail food and beverage from outside vendors. So to make it a really active space, and then as part of the development also provide housing literally right across the street from the office. So very smart move on their part to have a captive work audience that can live, work, and play all in the same spot. Yeah. And that tends to drive a lot of the mixed-use developments because 
it, it, it's really a more sustainable approach to building something where you can contain that critical mass, if you will. You can't build a development and have commercial office and retail only. The retail suffers nights and weekends because the commercial office folks go back to where they live. But if you include uh, a multifamily component to that, then you've got a little more uh, symbiotic relationship between all three. Bring up a really interesting point about the sort of sustainability and the lifeline, even on a daily basis of some of the projects. Because even if we were going back to what you were saying about Victory Park or really any sort of master planning, there seems to be the challenge of, okay, well, here's the vision for it. Like, how do you actually make sure that that happens? Or, or what can you do to kind of help support that? I know sometimes I go back to, like, visit my childhood neighborhood in Orange County, California. And I know what the vision for that particular block or that neighborhood was. But when you drive back, it's like things haven't changed since, like, the 90s or the 2000s. And the goal was, like, oh, everyone's going to come live here or everyone's going to come shop here. But you're right. It seems to be missing this element that sort of makes it magical and actually realistic and sustainable. Can you walk us through why sometimes some master plans succeed and then some maybe don't? Sure, sure. So there, there is a psychology to some of this. And what you just brought up is a perfect example, your hometown. Everybody has a hometown and, they, and everybody has a certain, typically a nostalgia for that hometown environment. And whether it's, it's because there was a comfort there or it was a bustling environment or it was uh, set out in a rural community and very, uh, very serene and calm. We we tend to keep those memories with us as we progress throughout life, and we're always looking at, in some point to replicate that. So when we talk about master planning and creating a successful development, it is really uh, one of the biggest challenges to be able to provide something in that development that is a little bit new and unique. In many ways, there is a standard formula that we talked about earlier with the commercial office, the multifamily, retail, entertainment. But <clears throat> there has to be something that's of value for people to go there. And so if we look at a lot of the successful master plans or developments in this area, and there's a terrific amount to look at, you find a little bit different character in each of these developments. Uh, West Village is a really great example. It's, it's a little bit denser in its planning but it has all of these great niche restaurants and interactive places where, where the community as a large can come in and engage. So engagement with the community, activating the space, uh, developing a placemaking strategy that people are really drawn to. And you, you can't just do that with uh, putting a series of lines on a piece of paper. The, the intentionality of the design is, is really process driven. It requires a lot of creativity and thought, looking at past precedents and imagery and having an expertise on this. But it's a very systematic approach in terms of how to, how to approach a site, starting from that blank piece of paper and going through and looking at roadways and access, any of the existing topography, context, what's around this development? Am I competing against something a mile away that's offering the same product? And so there's a lot of analysis that happens. And then, then you start looking at uh, what kinds of land use opportunities might there be. Is it going to be more heavily based on commercial office? Is it going to be more destination entertainment based? Is it going to be 
F&B oriented? Is it going to be something else? What's F&B? Food, food and beverage. Okay. Yeah, re- yeah, restaurants. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, and so you, you see some of these that have evolved and developed over time, and some tend to do a little better. And I think there's this notion that, uh, I think it's Yogi Berra who once said, nobody goes there because it's too crowded, right? I mean, that's yeah. part of the draw for yeah. some of these places. It just gets a consistent number of people, and there's a little bit of inertia behind that. Everybody wants to go there because everybody's there. Right. It's not just about putting the office space there or the restaurant there. There's all of these other elements that go into it, that accessibility. How hard is it going to be for me to go find parking or, you know, there's only one way in, one way out. or Convenience, open space. We haven't mm-hmm. talked much about that. But, but looking at a site and trying to map out, unless it's a very dense urban site and you don't really have the, the I wouldn't say necessity, but the ability to plan for a lot of open space. But, but that matters. And I think that one of the best examples we can look at is the development of Clyde Warren Park. So we had a downtown and an uptown separated by a canyon. <laughs> and there was no traveling to and fro in a very easy manner. For folks who aren't from Dallas, that canyon, there was a highway, right? Yes. And it, highways it, typically divide, you know, like the, sometimes the desirable part of town versus the less desirable part of town. Yeah. It can be sort of very divisive in yeah. how neighborhood develops. Yeah. And so Woodall Rogers was sunken and they had put a deck park over the top of it. And it wasn't concrete. It was grass and amenities and yoga stations and play for the kids and and a few restaurants sprinkled in and water features. That's another really important aspect of of large developments and master planned environments. Um, But what you have now is a connection between uptown and downtown. And one of the, the larger projects we're working on currently is, is Parkside Tower. It is an office tower that, that really fronts directly onto Clyde Warren Park. And so part of the reason that is, is, is and will be successful is because it's in a very prime location. Had it sat on the edge of a canyon looking down onto a highway, that there's no way it would, have, it would have garnered the same kind of attention or drawn in the kinds of tenants that, that it will. So it is now part of a larger urban fabric. And, and by the way, that buffer, that Clyde Warren Park buffer that exists, provides for 360 views of the rest of downtown. So, so green space and the ability for people to get out of their work environment or within their work environment have this connection visually to open space and green space is, is a really important psychological component as well as connections to water if I say, think of a babbling brook, you're going to mentally picture someplace you've been to that's peaceful and calm and serene. And it doesn't have, we're not, we're not artificially replicating that, but water in of itself is a very powerful design item. And so we want to look for those opportunities to, to incorporate green space and water pathways, areas where people can connect with, with one another and areas that are maybe more secluded a little bit out. So we have a variety of spatial types. And so when you're in the space, it's not just a football field. It's intentionally developed to be uh, energetic at times or uh, offer a a sense of respite where you can go and just relax a little bit or um, um, just a variety of different types of spaces. Yeah, it's punctuating the space with more than just the technical programmatic elements, right? And it's making it a real place to go to. It, it is. And, and the, the, the fun in all of this is being able to 
influence the trajectory of that campus to have, to really build into it something that's special. Yeah. And it's, it's very easy to put a series of grid lines on a paper and say, these are the roads and there's your buildings and you're done. But if you really examine the site, you know, much of what, what we do here at Corrigan is, is offering custom solutions to our clients. And it, so it, there's no, let's just replicate something that we know is successful. Because frankly, that's, that's a very tough thing to do. It's a very hard thing to take a Disneyland model and plunk it in the middle of downtown Dallas. It just, it's not going to work. Right. It has to be its own solution in its own context. So the, the, the goal for us is to develop a really compelling, interesting master plan that allows our clients the ability to, to visualize their thoughts and ideas um, to, to be able to extract from the plan into three-dimensional forms and put an architect define an architectural language. We, we'd love to have some consistency throughout the campus, and this has to do with a little bit of look, feel, scale, color, tactile versus smooth. Um, we don't want to have just a, a, a bunch of different building types. There has to be some cohesive architectural language. And that's, again, where I said the part of the fun is because you get to start to, to think about how would I like to experience this space? Yeah. How would my daughters like to interact with this space? Would they want to show up here to begin with? Right. And, and you know, I think it's the easy answer could be, well, maybe the location of that was a good one or whatever. But there's several... I think parts in, I know in the DFW area that we can point to where it's like, well, one side of this highway took off and just right on the other side maybe wasn't as successful. And it's because of these best practices that make it a real place. But I think it's so interesting also that you say you can't just take this best practice and go, okay, green space, great. Let's just plop in some green space. It's a little bit like saying... I want the hair, same haircut that the celebrity has. It just might not quite look the same. Yeah, Je- Jennifer Anderson's haircut's not going to look the same on me as it does on. You her. may have a recipe of of the parts and pieces, but in terms of when you add them and the character of that, the the flavor, if you will, might be slightly different depending on how you organize these. So that there's an awful lot of back and forth. It's an extremely collaborative effort. And uh, when we find the most value is when we're able to engage with our clients and systematically walk them through the decision-making process. Let's start with a site, whether it's one acre, 100 acres, 1,000 acres. Let's talk about um, what we think some of the best use scenarios might be on that site. And sometimes it's a mixed-use development. Sometimes it's a community college. Sometimes it's an industrial warehouse configuration. There's a multitude of different product types that can happen on any site, and you get to really explore and refine and come up with what, what you think is is going to suit the client the best. And so those different typologies um, all require some element of master planning, education campuses, higher ed campuses, healthcare facilities, big sprawling ones, um, corporate campuses. Do the best practices for each of them change a little or or are they kind of consistent? And, and if they're different a little bit, what can one learn from the other maybe? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's really nothing that's the same ever in our industry, even though you know this is a profession that's been out for, for, for many, many ages. Um, there are really some good, strong planning principles, but you have to look at each site independently. And you have to really start with what does it offer us and break it down into access. Some sites may be in rural locations, 
in more suburban environments. Others may be dense downtown environments. We find this a lot with our multifamily practice that a client says, hey, I got a small site and it's really tight and it's got these weird angles. That's a very tough thing to plan out. And same thing with the broader picture of master planning. You really have to start from what are we trying to accomplish? Let's develop a a goal set, uh, a series of guiding principles that we can go back to to test our, our assumptions. And, and then really just start the work of laying out the master plan and, and, and as we said, just systematically going back to the client and iterating along the way until you're both happy with the final result. So um, there are definitely similarities. If I, if I looked at some of the master plans we've done, say, 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, um, we've had a couple of pursuits with other sectors, so our education sector, there was a, a community campus, uh, community college that was looking to expand its campus, and we made the decision to, to, to team up together because of our corporate campus planning experience and our education studios, you know, higher education planning experience. There was a lot of things that we, we learned that we could um, share and benefit the project. Anything that in particular come to mind? Well, I, I think so for us on the corporate campus planning side, there's a lot of discussion about amenities and not to say that community colleges don't, but in terms of how they're configured, how we get people in and out of the site, uh, a lot of our campus planning is based on parking ratios. And so there's, in, in many cases on taller projects, a parking structure. And, and where does that parking structure exist on the site? So our, our um, education student, at least K through 12, doesn't typically deal with parking structures. They deal with surface parking. And so a little different methodology in terms of, you know, what that is, its placement, how it's accessed. You mentioned a while ago convenience. Yeah. If you can't get there, you may not go there. Right. If it's not easy getting out of that place, you may say, hey, look, I love what they have to offer, but it's not worth it. You know, I, I um, as we started with, there's a lot of sectors here that do master planning in a variety of forms. And to me, what's exciting is when we look at the the dynamic planning that happens in our aviation sectors, they have really large scale projects. You know, some of our bigger ones are maybe a couple hundred acres. Some of theirs might be thousands of acres. And to consider the long-term use of that site, if you take DFW Airport, for example, there was a vision many, many years ago about how it could grow into the future. And the master planners of that project really had, had, had kind of outlined, we've got all of this land. How do we want to phase this such that we can grow as a company or uh, an industry? Um, it's the same kind of mindset we have with, with our own building and how we've built expansion space. When you have large tracts of land and you look at a master plan, Sometimes those are very forward-looking 50-year plans. Mm. Sometimes they're imminent, three to five years. It does depend on scale, but, but there is a, if we look at, talk about scale specifically, you know, our aviation group tends to work on a much larger scale than we do. But even on our projects, we, we routinely talk about how do we phase this. So when it's like a 50-year scale, are you planning what's happening to the entire site? You, you want to have a picture of the final destination. When it's all built, here's what it should look like. That doesn't mean it. that's what it will look like. Right. That's just to say, when if we plan this accordingly and we have certain strategies on achieving either 
um, office rental rates or, you know, we have some, cons- con- you know, programmatic requirements that we want to maintain, you do want to map it all out and then you want to peel back and say, okay, here's what it is. If, if we can only build a quarter of that site, which quarter should we build? Do we want to start on the west side? Do we want to start on the east side, the north, the south? Do we want to start in the center and emanate out? There's, um, there's some really great other large master plan projects. Uh, Granite Park, for example, up in Plano is, has been phased over many, many years, and it has a central water feature. It's got some peripheral restaurants. It's got a hotel, and then it's got large office buildings flanking the site. And if you look at a little more detail, you'll see that those everything is really more internally focused so that when you arrive on site, you're parking at the, at the far perimeter of the site, getting into parking structures very conveniently, and then walking into offices and or into the center of the campus for the food and beverage or, or access to water. So that's, that's, a, that's a pretty critical concept to us is if we're looking at a, a mixed-use master plan to try to, to, to somehow segregate the, the flow and access of traffic versus pedestrians we want a very safe place to be. We'd love to have our kids running around and in a park-like setting and not have to worry about traffic, but it depends on where the site is. If it's West Village, that's not really the reality of that, of that, um, of that environment. It's a little more urban in its appeal. There's a little taller uh, multifamily framing, the, the periphery of it, and then you get into these internal garages, which are, which are disguised very, you, you typically don't even know you're pulling into a garage until all of a sudden there's a parking space. Right. And then you come out and there's a restaurant right across the street and there's lights and it's, it's clear and it's, it's easy to find things. So uh, there's a different character element to a lot of our master plans, but it really starts again with the, what is the owner looking to achieve and how can we best develop a plan that supports that in creating a space that is both memorable and enticing and compelling and intriguing and will continue to draw people in year after year. Yeah, I think that, you know, as we're talking, I'm realizing that there's kind of a few different ways to define the success of a master plan, obviously. Um, and there's one, which is like, okay, well, are we using it? Is it is it kind of growing and developing? But then two, there's the ability of a master plan to really shape the identity of of that particular site as well as the neighborhood and the community surrounding it. What sort of mechanisms and design interventions do you have to be able to help you do that? I I think of West Village, right? West Village is here in Dallas, very centrally located, and it has this very distinct character like you keep bringing up. And you know, as a layperson, I struggle to put my finger on what exactly is doing it, but it's so signature to West Village. What tools do you use as an architect to be able to help make that happen? Well, uh, as we keep referencing that project, I mean, that's really a lot of what we do on the front end is we'll look at precedent developments and we'll say from a character standpoint, here's what they achieved. Now, again, it's, it's a very tough thing to replicate something. You can't just take a West Village and make it happen anywhere. But you can learn from it uh, lessons about scale and proportion and convenience and access and safety. And so there's a lot of things that, that, that are truisms, if you will, that you want to apply to any project, but you may have to do it a little differently. So scale is, is extremely important. If we look at a site and it's a large scale and you start to talk about how to break this up, one of the first things we do is we look at the, the, the roadway configurations. Do we have major freeways running this? Do we want to include 
boulevards and avenues? Do we step down into streets and roads? Do we get into a back of house street muse? Do we get into pathways and sidewalks? There has to be a, a kind of a descending scale of transportation opportunities within the site so that people can very easily navigate that site. If it's, as we said earlier, tough to get to, you're not going to have a lot of success. It starts with, with that. And then it's within that roadway configuration, you know, what's the best system to keep people in there and what's the best orientation of these roads? Is it a grid? Is it a, a, a shallow arc? Is it a curving road? Um, there's all kinds of different reasons why you do different things. Sometimes curvilinear roadways will slow traffic a little bit. Um, it's maybe not the most convenient thing, but if you're trying to bring and instill a sense of, of discovery, sometimes those roads are great because you're not really sure what's around the next turn. Or you can't just zoom past or you can't. There's a, there's a calming, and you can put cobblestone or other traffic calming devices to help slow that traffic. Yeah. What? How else might you use, like, materiality or landscaping or even just sort of the style of the, of the exterior of the buildings? Well, I, I think, again, you're looking for uh, some kind of a, a motif, a character, a theme um, of the development. And whether that's uh, Texas modern or more high tech, um, there's a lot of different terms that you can apply to architecture. But I think once you've settled in on the, the general aesthetic, then you can start to look at those things that may influence people as they experience that campus at a, at a scale level. When we're dealing with very tall buildings in a large master plan, it's important from, from a distance that these buildings do stand out and have their own character. But if you think about the way that people actually interact with those buildings, it's not, it's not, it's not from our standpoint, it's not an aerial view of the, of the site. It's how are they parking their car? Are they doing head-in parking? Is it parallel parking? Um, there's a lot of different strategies you can utilize to keep people engaged and safe. Is it a tree-lined street? As I said, cobblestone earlier is a, a great paving material to help give a little bit of texture and feel. Um, you can do curbless drives. There's, there's, there's lots of elements that we can use to soften the palette, if you will, and make it a little more inviting. But ultimately, it's, it's the experience and the takeaway that that hopefully connects with something in your brain that you've experienced before that's been positive that we're trying to elicit in experiencing that space. So, Joe, I would imagine that there needs to be some actual data and some some science to kind of ground all of this and, and not just kind of say, oh, this will look nice. Can you walk me through how that data might inform the scale or the design of a master campus? Sure. So much of what we do is, is driven by architects, and it, it starts with the vision, the creativity. We're also engaging others in this effort. And if you're really trying to look at a, a very dense campus, let's say, you want to make sure you have a civil engineer who can look at the traffic flow studies. There's always a, a traffic impact analysis that might be required. So it depends on how many people you're bringing into this development and what kinds of infrastructure do you need to support that? So it, it's a very tough thing to do to build a tall tower with a surface parking lot. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, you know, it doesn't really pencil out because people that work in the tower want to park proximate to it. Right. So then you have to look at a parking structure. 
And then it gets into the balance of how big of a building, how tall of a parking structure. So then you get into the, the ratios of square footage to, to parking. Um, there's some code required uh, numbers that we would typically start with, but a developer may say, I want a very dense urban development and I want a lot of people to park here. So let's make a, a much higher parking ratio so that we can support more cars. There's other developments. This is this gets into the kind of the shared parking conversation. There's other developments. Uh, I'll use um, South Lake Town Center as a really good example of this. It's it's primarily um, an inter- a, a restaurant shopping destination. There are there's surface parking scattered all throughout, and there's a couple larger surface lots, but there's also two large central parking structures. And so for the office community that, that works out with it, we just finished building an office in South Lake. Um, the parking demand for them is met partially by those large parking structures because during the day, there's not as much traffic to support the retail. It's really on the nights and weekends where those two large parking structures are taking the brunt of, of all the additional people on the site. So that, that's another element to, to consider as you asked about the, the, the metrics or the criteria how many people do we want to support? How do we safely get them in and out of the campus? And then start to rely on others in our industry, civil engineers, landscape architects, maybe to start to develop some of the planting palettes or look and feel of the character of the, of the spaces. Uh, so it's, it's, it's always a, a team sport for us and making sure that we can bring in the right team members with the right expertise to provide that guidance. You know, you also mentioned that because there is a a long lifeline to these sites, that there's trends that have sort of – that you can look back at over the past several decades. And more recently, this idea and the resurgence of live, work, and play. Do you forecast any other changes or major trends that are going to ask us to revisit big principles in master master planning? Yeah, I think the live, work, play is here for multiple reasons. One, there's this mindset from from large corporations that say we want to give our employees everything within walking distance. Walkability is is a big aspect. As we look at the broader picture of architecture in general and some of the problems that it can help solve, density, sustainability, building large communities that have a more of a sense of of c- connection engagement. And, and allow you to build these micro neighborhoods that can coexist kind of with their own identity, there's always going to be the need for, to, to run up to, I live in Flower Mound, I work in Dallas, sometimes I go up to Frisco, sometimes I go to South Lake. There's different moments and elements, but if you live in a large mixed-use development and you have most of that in and around you on a daily basis, it, it just makes for a more connected community. You're not in your car as much. You may rely a little bit more on public transportation. But to, to me, there's, a, there's, a, there's an underlying principle here of the live, work, play, and that is larger, more denser environments tend to be a little better for our, our, our environment. If we look at the, the general trend of where people are living, they're, they're moving back into the cities. I think they said by 2050, 70% of the world will live in, in and around cities. And so making sure that all of our cities have the right infrastructure to support that, making sure that those municipalities understand the importance of dense urban environments. Sometimes there's a challenge there to try to build something taller. You have to rezone a site 
to get it to the right size. But um, other than that, I, I think I think we're still going to see um, an idea of uh, how AI, how technology influences some of these developments. There's a there's a kind of a time tested architectural realm that says you build these buildings, they're occupied by people, those people engage in those buildings in the surrounding context. It's a little easier to technologically connect to people these days. So I'm not sure that's going to change or evolve mixed-use developments overnight. It may be that there's more reliance on people connecting within their own neighborhoods and whether those are more urban mixed-use high-rise neighborhoods or if we continue to see suburban developments out on the peripheries. But we're, we're continuing to see a lot of focus in the downtown cores, and we're still seeing developers look north, far north, far south, because that's where the land is. Well, thank you so much, Joe. It's been great chatting with you. Of course. And thank you so much for watching. We'll see you the next time on The Square. Cool.